a message from one of our Sunday celebrations. And you can find out more about Jubilee by visiting our website at www.jubilee.org.uk. Jeremiah 29, and uh, it's quite familiar. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you hope and a future. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and will bring you back from captivity. So we all have a purpose or a mission, and uh, organisations like sort of churches, schools, uh, businesses, they all have a mission and a sort of purpose as well. And leaders love to talk about mission. They love to think about mission and cast vision for it and strategize about it and celebrate it as well. And uh, to, recently I've, I've come across a, a sort of slightly cheesy American phrase, but it's going it's to sort of underpin the message today. And that is, as well as having a purpose or a mission, we also have a shadow purpose or a shadow mission. Shadow mission. So that's kind of what I want to talk about. It's basically... I'll just explain what that means. It's a temptation to let our lives drift into a pursuit of something that's maybe unworthy, selfish, uh, dark or sinful or something like that. Uh, so we're going to look at that throughout the, the talk today. And, um, you know, sort of, I just want to talk about living in the purpose uh, that we're made for and resisting the pull of this shadow mission that we're going to look at. So bear with me. I'm going to mention that shadow mission quite a bit, but uh, hopefully we'll get some understanding of try and apply it. So let's pray and we'll get going. Lord, I just want to thank you for your love to us. Lord, thank you that you first loved us, Lord, and um, that you are sovereign. God, thank you for speaking to us today about how you reign. Lord God, we love to be in your presence. Lord, I pray today you just continue to speak to us. Lord, teach us about your sovereignty, Lord. Lord, teach us about how you're with us and how you've called us for a purpose. Lord, teach us that, that we're not just doing stuff on our own, that we are caught up in your great mission. Thank you, Lord God. Amen. Cool. So we're, gonna, we're carrying on our series of heroes. And uh, previously we've had, we've had people like um, uh, Nehemiah, David, Noah, Joseph. We're going to go slightly against the grain today. We're going to look at a woman. And... Uh, yeah, she's a brave, intelligent, selfless, really hot woman, and uh, that's Esther. And so the, my message today is called Living for Such a Time as This. Um, the story of Esther basically follows some characters, and they're given a ch- choices between mission and shadow mission. And so people choose either of the two, destinies are formed, and yeah, the world has changed. It's a pretty amazing story if you haven't read it. Uh, it's amazing if you have read it. Um, so let's open our Bibles to Esther because we're, we're basically going to go through the whole story today. <laughs> but I'm not going to read the, the entire story from the Bible. We'll paraphrase and we'll just go through it together. So um, just to give a bit of context of what's going on, uh, it's, um, it's set in Persia around 483 B.C., uh, this particular story is set in the capital, which is Susa, and um, it's kind of focused around the Israelites who were in exile at the time. Um, I'm just gonna we're gonna kick off with uh, verses one to nine, 
Uh, but like I say, we'll go through the rest of it, so keep your Bibles open. Right, so Esther chapter 1, verse 1. This is what happened during the time of Xerxes. The Xerxes who ruled over 127 provinces, stretching from India to Kush. At that time, King Xerxes reigned from his royal throne in the citadel of Susa. And in the third year of his reign, he gave a banquet for all his nobles and officials. The military leaders of Persia and Medea, the princes and the nobles of the provinces were present. For a full 180 days, he displayed the vast wealth of his kingdom and the splendor and glory of his majesty. And when these days were over, the king gave a banquet lasting seven days in the enclosed garden of the king's palace for all the people from the least to the greatest who were in the citadel of Susa. The garden had hangings of white and blue linen fastened with cords of white linen and purple material to silver rings on marble pillars. There were couches of gold and silver on a mosaic pavement of porphyry, marble, mother of pearl and other costly stones. Wine was served in goblets of gold, each one different from the other, and the royal wine was abundant in keeping with the king's liberality. By the king's command, each guest was allowed to drink in his own way. For the king instructed all the wine stewards to serve each man what he wished. And Queen Vashti also gave a banquet for the women in the royal palace of King Xerxes. So the author, whoever that was of this book, some people think it's Ezra or Nehemiah, doesn't, the author's basically wanting us to get a picture of a king who's immensely powerful. And uh, his kingdom extended through 127 provinces throughout the world. Um, he's not a particularly admirable guy. He, he, it's quite clear, even from that first little section, that he loves showing off. Absolutely loves it. And, um, but he hasn't really got a, an inner spirit particularly. We see that throughout the story. He, he can't really make decisions for himself. We'll, just see, we'll see him constantly be asking advice. Um, and so the story kicks off with a banquet. There's three banquets in this passage alone. And you can kind of break up the book of Esther by food and feasting and partying. So it's kind of, you literally can, it's sections of banqueting, basically. Um, this first one lasts six months of uh, feasting. Brilliant. And, uh, and then he has another one after that, because he obviously got a bit bored in the half an hour that it, it had all been packed away. Uh, this time for everyone in the capital, so the commoners as well, like the least of the kingdom probably just so he could show off to more people, basically. Like, I'm amazing, check me out. And so they're all there as well. There's masses of wealth on display, feasting, people drinking bathfuls of wine. It's absolutely mental. Like, it's, an ama- it's a massive party. And then we sa- it says, and then Queen Vashti has a party for the women. We don't, we're not really told much about that one, but some scholars do maintain that there's potentially a bit of rosé there and they sort of sat around and talked about their feelings. We, ju- we don't know. Don't dwell on that. It's not important. It just, we just don't know. We don't have the facts. Um, so after the banquet, King Xerxes is pretty merry. And uh, he's, he's in the swing of things. He's showing off his possessions, verse 10. And then he wants to show off his ultimate possession. That is the Queen Vashti. Basically because she's really gorgeous. Uh, he wants to show her off, he wants to parade her around. He doesn't particularly want her to come and solve any arithmetic problems for the court or you know, come and lead a discussion in the decline of the Babylonians or anything like that. It's, she's hot, basically. And um, so in that respect, it's probably going to be quite humiliating. And she actually says no. She's like, I, you know, as much as I'd love to parade around in front of your crazed mob after a week of Miller time, I just, I'm, I'm washing my hair, all right? Sorry. 
So obviously Xerxes apologises profusely. You've caught, you're absolutely right. I'm really sorry. That would have been awkward. Uh, except that he doesn't, because in verse 12 he says he actually became furious and burned with anger. And this is the kind of guy, this is the picture of a guy we're getting. It struck against his power, his dominance, his, uh, his image projection, his pleasure, all of these things that he is going for. It struck against that. And so that's, we can kind of see that's his shadow mission, if you, if you start to get what this means. So that's Xerxes' shadow mission, is all these things, power, wealth, pleasure. Uh, and then he, So he goes to the experts in the law, who are the highest in the kingdom, we see that in verse 13. And uh, it seems that the writer of the book is kind of poking fun at um, the king, because you know, he's the most powerful man in the world, essentially. He can't really control his wife, uh, so he goes to the Supreme Court and makes it a matter of state. What am I going to do with her? She's washing her hair. I can't control her. And, uh, and so they, they come up with a suggestion to make a decree, 19 to 20, basically that she should never be in his presence again, so she's out of the picture. And then he should get a new queen to replace her. And then also, because it seems like you're still in control, everyone will still respect you, so it's okay. And he absolutely loves it. He's like, I'm really glad I thought of that, guys. Thank you so much. Um, so he goes ahead and gets rid of Vashti, deposes her. Um, moving on to chapter 2, we see he starts to sober up a bit. He's, he calms down. He starts to miss her. He says he remembers her. And, um, and he realises he has no queen now. So he obviously wants to rectify us. Again, asks advice, this time not from the scholars and the officials, but from his personal attendants. And these guys are most likely younger, sort of jock, sort of bodyguard type guys. And strangely enough, they suggest, you can just sort of imagine them kind of, well, we think you should uh, hold a, a beauty contest yeah, uh, f- or, yeah, from all over your kingdoms, 127 provinces. And what, and what you should do is get them to contribute to your harem, loads of gorgeous women. And then we'll just like judge it, and, and then the winner, the most gorgeous woman, can replace the queen, and then you can keep the harem going as well. Yeah? <laughs> and he's like, yeah, all right, let's do it. Um, so the, the, the winner of this cont- contest, uh, the one who makes the king go sugar, uh, she's going to replace the queen and become the new queen. Um, and I know at this point, you know, it's difficult to believe that there was once a time in a culture that was so superficial that you know, a middle-aged man might show off his wealth and his power in order to attract a young woman and sort of parade around in front of his friends. And I know it's unimaginable, it's going to be difficult to try and get it around your head, but just bear with us, it happened. There was a society like that. So we'll just try and work with it, okay? Poor people. Anyway, <laughs> so the king does what they, th- they suggest, and uh, this is where we first come across Esther. And she's a young Jewish girl. Um, we're told she's orphaned and raised by a Jew, a guy called Mordecai. And we're going to come back to him because he's an absolute key character in the story. We're told she's really hot as well. And uh, she ends up, because of that, making the finals, as it were, of this sort of beauty contest. And uh, this means she had to go and prepare in order to come before the king. Um, I just want to have a quick look at the, the preparation, right? It's quite a big deal. So, ladies, right? If you've ever 
if you were to go on a date with a guy that you're really interested in, or you know, if you've been on a date that you really wanted to go well, yeah, um, just have a think about the time it took for you to get ready for that date. So you've got, you've got to do your hair, you've got, obviously got to wash first, maybe. Um, makeup, probably. Um, I'm not looking at anyone in particular here, by the way. Uh, you know, wardrobe, accessories, perfume, all that sort of stuff. Let's have a bit of honesty quickly. Has anyone actually spent more time get, than an hour getting ready for a date? <laughs> um, oh, guys as well, <laughs> yeah. Fair enough. Has anyone actually spent more time getting ready for a date than you have you know, on the actual date itself? Mike? Um, <laughs> thought that was a hand there. <laughs> That's a shame. Um, has anyone actually had more fun getting ready for a date than you've had on the date itself? Yeah, all right. <sighs> we might have some ministry later if we've got time. But we, basically, we read that Esther had to get ready for a year before she meets the king. So she's, she's, get, she's 12 months of, of beauty treatments and spas and bathing in cream or whatever they do. I don't know. Um, might be a good idea. Milk, okay, yeah. Cream, well, she's a queen. Maybe it was, I don't know. Um, it doesn't apply to me. Um, <laughs> stop heckling. Uh, yeah, I mean... 12 months of getting ready, talk about pressure, you know, if, if someone's not going to find you attractive after a year of preparing for a date, it's probably never going to happen, let's face it. But she's brilliant because she wins. So the king, we see in verse 17, he favoured her amongst all of the women uh, and he ends up making her the queen instead of Vashti. Uh, and then in classic Xerxes style, he sort of throws another banquet, makes a holiday, starts dishing out gifts. He's a... Uh, it's another chance to show off, in my opinion. So now he's got a new, a new hot bride, you know, parade her around a bit. And we can start to see her mission, her purpose now. Arm candy for the most powerful guy in the world. Uh, lives happily ever after. Really? Um, maybe not. I don't think so. Um, we'll, see. we'll see a bit later. But we move on to chapter three. And we're introduced to another guy who plays a fairly big part in this story. So chapter three, verse one. After these events... King Xerxes honoured, I'm going to call him Haman, son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, just trying to be a bit more authentic, elevating him and giving him a seat of honour higher than that of all the other nobles. All the royal officials at the king's gate knelt down and paid honour to Haman, for the king had commanded this concerning him. But Mordecai would not kneel down or pay him honour. Remember, Mordecai is the cousin of Esther, the guy who raised her. He's a Jew, he worships God. He won't bow down to this guy. Um, we see in verse 5 to 6, Haman does not like this. Um, he said, when he saw him not bowing down, he was enraged. He wants to kill Mordecai. As if that wasn't bad enough. He, he's actually like, don't just want to kill him. I want to kill everyone like him. I want to kill, he basically wants to kill and destroy all the Jews in the, in the kingdom of Xerxes. Remember, that's 127 provinces of dispersed exiled Jews. That's a lot of people. He wants, to, he wants to destroy the lot. So he goes off to the king, Xerxes, and uh, essentially bribes him. He says, I'll, you know, I'll give you 10,000 talents of silver, which are equivalent to about 300 tonnes of silver, uh, to pay for whatever I need to do for you to let me kill the, the, a certain people. A certain people. He doesn't even say who. 
And the king, I mean, he's, an in, he's full of integrity. Yeah, whatever. Here's my, uh, here's my ring. Kiss it and you can have it. You can, that can seal, seal the, uh, what you want to do. I'll authorize it. He doesn't even know the people that he's you know, authorizing for destruction. He doesn't care, um, which is a shame. Uh, and then we see in chapter 4 that Mordecai learns about this, and he is gutted, absolutely gutted. When Mordecai learned of all that had been done, he tore his clothes, put on sackcloth and ashes, and went out into the city, wailing loudly and bitterly. And uh, you know, this is quite a political act. It's, a, it's an act of protest in, in his grief. It's a bit, I guess it would be a bit like sort of picketing it or you know, protesting outside Downing Street or the White House. And for that reason, it was, a, it was an act of huge courage as well. So we start to get a picture of who Mordecai is, a guy full of courage. And uh, obviously this is affecting him massively. He realises if anything's to be done, if, if the Jews are going to be saved, it's up to Esther. This girl that he's raised, his cousin, she's now in the royal household. She's now the queen. He thinks, I've got to go to her. So he goes to Esther, gives her a message, and pretty much says, you, you're going to have to go to the king. You're going to have to turn this situation around. And we see, and for very good reasons, Esther just doesn't want to do it. Uh, it's, good, it's helpful to read her response in verse 11 to what he's saying to her. She says, All the king's officials and the people of the royal provinces know that for any man or woman who approaches the king in the inner court without being summoned, the king has but one law, that he be put to death. The only exception to this is for the king to extend the golden scepter to him and spare his life. And she also adds, But thirty days have passed since I was called to go to the king. So she's, she's facing potential death just by going to the guy. But also, we see she, she hasn't even seen him for a month. They're a husband and wife haven't seen each other for a month. And remember, he, he's got a full harem of hot women. Uh, he's probably not the most devoted husband. So she's thinking, I might die. Plus, I'm not quite sure about how much influence I've got anymore because I haven't seen him for a month and he's got all these women anyway. So she's pretty much, you know, she's got good reason to say no to Mordecai. But Mordecai doesn't stop. He doesn't, he, I can imagine a lot of us might, you know, if close family and someone we've raised even, to, set, to send them to potential death, you might go, all right, I'm, you know, sorry, don't, don't do it, of course not. But he doesn't. He, he keeps going. He challenges it. And this is kind of where the story begins to turn around. So in verse, verses 12 to 14, we see his response to her. He says, do not think that because you're in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place. And then there's a kind of another little theme that starts to appear in the book. Mordecai starts expressing faith in someone who isn't named in this book, but is at work all the time. He says, For you and your father's family will perish, and who knows, but that you've come to royal position for such a time as this. He's basically saying to her, he's saying, Esther, the fate of a whole nation, the dream of God's people is in your hands. You didn't ask for it, but here it is. He's cut. In, that, in that challenge, he's saying, Esther, you haven't been brought to this point in your life just to accumulate wealth, fragrances, wa- amazing wardrobe. You haven't been pro- brought to this point in your life to become the most desirable and attractive woman in the kingdom. 
You haven't even been brought to this point in your life for, for the reason the king thinks you have. But Esther, you've been brought to this point in your life to be a part of what God's doing on the earth, to work for justice, to spare a people from suffering and to oppose an essentially evil and really powerful man. He's saying you've been brought to this point in your life to be a part of God's plan to redeem his people. So Esther, don't let your success at filling society's stereotype of women blind you to what God has called you to be. In other words, he's saying don't be distracted by a shadow mission. Yeah? So Mordecai helps her to essentially discern God's activity, his calling on her life. And his challenge is massive. He's saying, if you say no here, if you miss this, as frightening as it is, then essentially you're missing the reason you're on the planet. Who knows, but you've come to your royal position for such a time as this. This is your moment, Esther. This is it. And, and she gets it. She gets it. And so she tells Mordecai that she wants three days to pray and fast. Actually, just says they're going to fast, but in the Old Testament... Fasting was always accompanied by prayer. It's a spiritual discipline for the Jews, so we're confident that they were praying and fasting. She also asks him to get all the Jews in the, in the capital to do the same, so they're praying and fasting for three days. And we see here that her choices now. It's clear she's not relying on her, her beauty, intelligence, influence, although they're great. She's relying on God now. She's relying on God, her hope. And at verse 16, to kind of towards the end of chapter 4 we see her amazing courage which easily matches Mordecai's challenge she says um, uh, when this is done I will go to the king even though it is against the law and if I perish I perish and that's amazing that is absolutely amazing I'm going to the king against the law and if I die I die I mean that what a challenge for us could we say that? Could we say that? And uh, Xerxes got no idea what sort of woman she is. No idea. A few years ago, in, uh, in America, there was a little quirky little story that came up on the news. And basically what happened was there was a, an organisation called the BLO, which stands for Barbie Liberation Organisation. What they did is they intercepted a load of Barbie dolls and G.I. Joes, action men, and, and, and then surgically, in their sort of uh, labs or whatever, and they surgically uh, switched the voice boxes. So there were then thousands of kids across America opening up uh, G.I. Joes, pulling the little string and then going, let's shop till we drop! Or like... Uh, <laughs> Maths is hard! <laughs> and then conversely, you've got like... You've got G.I. Joes going, yeah! Uh, no, you sorry, you've got Barbie dolls going... <laughs> uh, dead men tell no lies <laughs> or like a Barbie doll going there's no escape for the guilty <laughs> uh, it's a stupid little story but I kind of think that's what Xerxes had he thought he had a Barbie doll there's no escape for the guilty uh, I just want to pause at this point in the story I just want to ask a couple of questions all right? so up to this point we've seen Xerxes' shadow mission wealth, power, dominance, image We've seen, we start, we've seen Esther's, actually. It's kind of similar, wealth, beauty, uh, attractiveness, all that sort of stuff. I just want to say, what is your shadow mission? We start to think about what kind of thing is our shadow purpose or mission. 
Everyone's got one. What's yours? Um, life just kind of goes on default mode. Where's it going to drift? Is, is basically what I'm asking. Um, might be to project an attractive image like Esther. I know it's, that's really important in culture as well. And, or maybe it's about more money. Maybe it's about more security, more power. Might be. Might even be uh, a projecting a, a kind of super spiritual f- face in front of people. Even here, it might be that. That might be your shadow mission. Um, it kind of. It can seem strange to believe that it can have any sort of bearing on the larger world, like these these things in our lives, but. Because we'll, we'll never ultimately know the full consequences of our choices. But I think God does reveal um, the kind of the harsher consequences of shadow missions in the Bible, in stories. They lead to death. Whereas he also shows the reward of fighting shadow missions, which leads to life. Um, and I've been, I've been thinking a bit recently about maybe, maybe it would be helpful to have a personal sort of mission statement. I know that sounds kind of like another strategy or idea to help us out, but like I genuinely think, you know, if we're talking about for such a time as this, it could be amazing. I could tell you mine in four words. It's something I've been thinking about recently a lot. I heard it, I heard it a few weeks ago. And it's, um, it's learn to linger longer. And it's like another cheesy little Christian phrase, but I can't shake it off. And I'm, So now I'm choosing to embrace it because every time... I feel like I'm on the brink of a shadow mission. Uh, that phrase is, that phrase pops up, and it reminds me how good it is for my for my soul to linger in the presence of God, and how exciting it could be, and the possibilities, what could happen in my life and people's lives around me, if I could just be with Him, and not end up rushing away and getting caught up in distraction and pride and selfishness and lust and all these things. What's your shadow mission? And what could be your personal sort of statement to fight it? And the second question is quickly, who is Mordecai in your life? Do you have a person like Mordecai who can love you, who's spiritually wise, who can look out for you, who can challenge you as well when you might be on on the brink of a shadow mission or someone who can help discern what God's calling on your life can be? I think it's really helpful to have someone like that Especially in a culture, our sort of culture seems to be a bit more insular and isolated than it has been in the past. You know, sort of not quite as much community. People don't ha- generally don't have someone like Mordecai to really properly speak into their lives. I think you could say a lot of people are becoming kind of richer in stuff, but poorer in person, poorer in people. And uh, even here at Jubilee, a good place to start would be life groups. You know, we're kind of one of the reasons we've, we've got them going on is to help people get connected, help people find someone and uh, people around them for community to help encourage them, to help challenge them, and to speak into their lives. So, a couple of things to mull over there. What's your shadow mission? What can you do to fight it? And who is your Mordecai? But back to the story anyway, at this point, we'll carry on. Um, Esther had a Mordecai, she had Mordecai, and everything changed. We've seen that. So this beauty queen, this king's trophy wife, she fasts for three days, she puts on her royal robes and she goes to the king's inner rooms, waiting outside the inner court, thinking, this could be it, I, I could, I, he, could he might not extend the scepter, I might be sentenced to death, depends what mood he's in. 
luckily, well, we, it's not luck, is it? Um, the king was pleased to see her, and she goes in, and uh, he essentially says, you know, what's up? Whatever you want, I'll give it to you, even up to half the kingdom. And I kind of get the feeling that really what he means is, come on then, I'm in a good mood, you know. If she'd have actually asked for half the kingdom, he probably wouldn't have said, yeah, okay, you know, we know what he's like. He, he likes the dominance. He wants the wealth and the power. He, he probably meant something along the lines of, okay, come on, you can, you can control the sky remote tonight. All right, yeah, you can have that. But anyway, she doesn't, she doesn't tell him what she wants. She, she's quite a clever, smart woman. She knows him. She knows what kind of a man he is. So she invites him to a banquet. We know he, he loves to party. And... Uh, and, and this time she requests Haman to come as well. Um, she obviously knows what's going on. Uh, so they go to the first banquet that she puts on for them. And the king asks her again, what, what is your request? And she's, uh, she says, please come to another banquet. And then if you show me favour, if the king favours me, then I'll tell you. Um, she's out manoeuvring everyone at this point. The king's practically, practically agreed to her request by showing favour, turning up to the second banquet. Um, We don't find out what happened at the second banquet until the author just deals with a quick side story uh, about Haman. So chapter 5, around verse 9, we're told that he goes out, Haman goes out really happy, chuffed, he's in high spirits, uh, until he sees Mordecai at the king's gate, and then he's filled with rage. And he hates him, he hates him. But he goes home, and tries to cheer himself up by boasting to his wife and friends about how amazing life is, how he's got so much wealth, he's got good, good many sons, the king's honouring him, he's elevating him to a high position in the court. And that's not all, Haman added. I'm the only person Queen Esther invited to accompany the king to the banquet she gave, and she's invited me along with the king tomorrow. So he's, we're starting to get a picture of him as well, and what his shadow mission is. And his is called more. It's just more power, more wealth, more applause, more success. And when you live in a shadow mission, it's never enough. Getting, getting what I mean by shadow mission now. I, we're going keep, gonna to keep saying it. But it's never enough, is it? You're never going to get satisfaction. Um, and at the end of that, verse 13, he says, none of this gives me satisfaction while I see Jew, the Jew, Mordecai, sitting at the king's gate. So his wife, helpfully, loving, doting wife, says, I know, why don't you build a gallows 75 feet high and hang him on it? She's a lovely, lovely woman. And, um, and then he's like, that's a delightful idea, darling. <laughs> okay, let's do it. And so he builds it. Lovely couple there, teamwork. <laughs> and so he, so he builds a gallows 75 feet, feet high outside his house. Uh, and now we, st- we start to see little whispers of God's intervention. Although he isn't named in this book, he, he's clearly there. At the same night, the king can't sleep. When the king can't sleep, no one sleeps, all right? The king wants a bedtime story, right? And when you're the king, you don't have to read it to yourself, obviously. He orders one of his servants to come and read to him. And he orders, strangely enough, the book of the Chronicles, the, the record of his own reign. So it's a book about himself. Brilliant. He loves himself. Uh, I remember like, um, having a book when I was a kid that I was the, the, the main character in. You know, it's like you, your parents can, 
You can, you can send off a book, put your kid's name in, they'll just print it with the, ma- the name. It was like Mother Goose or something, crazy story like that. And like at the time, I, I used to read it and read it and read it, and I'd have dreams, I'd be daydreaming and thinking, like, I'm this amazing fantasy character in this book. I'm, I started to almost believe that I'd been flying on the back of a giant goose and like fighting crocodiles and stuff. It's amazing. He's obviously taken that on. This stuff is about him. It's probably elevated you know, they've elevated the truth to, to please him. But he's basically reading about himself. He loves himself. But again, coincidentally, I don't think it is, they start reading about a guy called Mordecai and how he saved Xerxes' life. And we read that at the end of chapter two, that he did actually save his life. He uncovered an assassination plot, but he'd never been honoured for it. So the king, the king was like, he's never been honoured for it. Right. Again, coincidentally, we, we know it isn't, Haman walks into the court at the same time. But he wanted to speak to the king about killing Mordecai with, on his new gallows that he's built. So the king sends for him, and the king's first words, we're looking at chap, uh, chapter 6, verse 6. The king says, Haman, just the guy I wanted to see, what should be done for the man the king delights to honour? And Haman, is, his instant reaction is, well, we know who that is, don't we? Couldn't be anyone, it couldn't be anyone else. It's me. And so he, get, he gives the king this great answer. He's like, yeah, oh, yeah you, should like, you should put your, your royal robes on him. You should crown him. You should give him a, a big royal horse. and Just put a crown on the horse. Why not? Uh, get one of the noble princes to lead it through the city and do a big you know, pomp and ceremony and everyone's loving it. Yeah. And thinking, that's brilliant. I can't wait. The king's like, uh, yeah. It, I mean, it seems like he'll just agree to anything, won't he? <laughs> okay. Um, so that, but... Slap in the face, he goes, brilliant idea, Haman. The guy I want to honour is Mordecai, and you can pull the horse. <laughs> and uh, Mordecai's pretty gutted, to be honest, and we see that it just goes downhill for him rapidly. He goes... He, uh, sorry, yeah, Haman. Thank you. Thank you so much. Um, Esther holds her banquet. He go, they both go along, Xerxes and Haman. And uh, she, this is the one where she said she would reveal her request, so she talks about the plot to destroy the Jewish people, and when the king, the king's enraged, who would do this? And so she says, Haman. And so the king, in his anger, ends up hanging him on the same gallows that Haman built to kill Mordecai. So the whole thing is turned around in like a day. Um, and it's, it's just so obvious that God is intervening here. So the king needs a new chief of staff now, because obviously Haman's gone. And uh, we know he can't make decisions, so he gets, uh, this time he gets Esther to uh, suggest someone. She suggests Mordecai, and she ends up setting him over the house of Haman. He receives all his wealth and position. And then she goes back to the king and says, remember the decree that he made to d- d- destroy the Jews. I want to overrule it. Uh, but because the king sealed it, it's against the law to overrule anything if it's been sealed with his royal crest. And, uh, but he, this is how amazing the, the, the story has got. God has brought these Esther and Mordecai to this point where the king basically authorises them to write new legislation uh, to protect the Jews. So they're, they're now, she's now the queen. Mordecai's set up the second in the kingdom and they're writing legislation for the entire kingdom. It's amazing. Um, so they protect the Jews. We see that the Jews have authorization to protect themselves. 
all turns out right for them. And uh, even in chapter 8 we see that they're so favoured now and people are respecting them and fearing them that people from all other nations around the kingdom are turning to the God of Israel as a result. It's an amazing story. It's amazingly turned around. And all because one man was willing to name reality to a woman. And that, that phrase that he used, who knows, but you've come to your position for such a time as this. And one woman said no to a shadow mission of safety, security, wealth. But she said yes to following God to the point of potentially losing her life. And so now it's, now it's our day. It's like, it's your day. Um, you are where you are. I don't know why. Maybe you don't. And, and you've been given what you've been given. And you've, you are where you are for a reason. And you have a mission and a shadow mission. Uh, and that's the challenge, basically. In our own strength, we'll end up drifting to pursuing this shadow mission in our life. But the good news is that we have a great high priest. <laughs> we have a great high priest who, who empathizes with us completely. Jesus understands. Jesus faced a shadow mission. And I believe it was to somehow be the Messiah without suffering and without the cross. And, um, a New Testament scholar called F.F. F. Bruce said, time and time again, the temptation came to Jesus from many directions to choose some less costly way of fulfilling his calling than the way of suffering and death. But he resisted it. He resisted it. You know he was tempted and tried in the desert by Satan. And Satan was coming up to him going, you can be Messiah on a mission without hunger. Turn those stones into bread. And Jesus goes, no, that's not my mission. All right, you can be Messiah on a mission without pain. Throw yourself down from the temple and surely the angels will bear you up. He goes, no, it's not my mission. And then he goes, you can be Messiah on a mission without any opposition. Just bow down to me and I'll give you all the kingdoms on the earth. And Jesus is going, no, no, that's not my mission. That's my shadow mission. And later on, he's telling his disciples that he's going to have to suffer and die. And Peter's like, no, don't say that. Don't say that. There's got to be another way. You don't have to suffer. You don't have to die. And that's the shadow mission. That's why Jesus rebukes him so sharply. He goes, get behind me, Satan. Because that's where it comes from. That's where the shadow mission comes from. That's where they all come from. And in, in Gethsemane, Matthew 26, it says, going a little farther, he fell with his face to the ground and prayed, my father, if it's possible, may this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. He chooses the, the true mission and not the shadow mission. And so, so your life and my life, we're all part of a, a, a much bigger thing. We're part of a much bigger miss, mission. That's God's mission. That's God's purposes. And this is going on all the way through the book of Esther. Now, I know I said before that it's the only book in the Bible that there isn't a name for God, that there isn't a, a name or a title or a pronoun for God. But whatever the reason, I, I think it's because, if there is a reason, it's because like, like in our lives, he's, God's kind of often off stage, unseen, but the, like the main character in the story. And uh, there's so many indirect references to God throughout the book and, and some fairly obvious div- divine interventions like we were looking at earlier. Um, God really wants us to see his sovereignty in this book. That even in exile, unseen, unnamed, in unlikely ways, you know, in a manger, on a cross, 
in an office, in a car park. Here, God's here and God's at work. Just like he was for Esther, just like he is for us. So I just want to close by reading that passage in Jeremiah again. Jeremiah 29, 11 to 14. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you hope and a future. And then you will call upon me and come and pray to me and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord. And I will bring you back from captivity. Who knows, but you've come to your position for such a time as this. Thanks for listening to this Jubilee Church podcast. Feel free to check out our website at www.jubilee.org.uk or come along on any Sunday.